Hello, you're listening to Bible Truth Feed, the podcast for Christadelphians and those seeking the truth of the Bible. We're continuing in our series now with this episode number eight of The Life of Christ by Brother John Martin. Now this is a continuing series that we're running um, and hopefully going to compile an audio book in the end. Um, But it's a fascinating series of about 190 odd classes um, given over a number of years by Brother Brother John who has recently departed. So I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any comments or questions please do get in touch. We, We do like to hear and view your comments and your thoughts um, and give us suggestions of what you'd like to hear but until next time may god bless you in your studies and in your walk toward his kingdom and the glorification of his name amen You know, we're tremendously privileged, brothers and sisters, to have this record of John, this chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17 of a very long discourse which was very private and very intimate. We are wonderfully privileged that that we can open up this book and actually read that here uh, that God has left on record through his inspiration that we might, as it were, sit there at that Last Supper with our Lord and have him talk really to our hearts. It is a magnificent section of scripture, but it's not always easy, brothers and sisters, to see the profundity of it. On the surface, you read it, and it would almost seem, you know, that if you love me, I will love you, and my father will love you, and so forth. You can take it very simply, but there is some absolutely profound thoughts that the Lord is presenting here, brothers and sisters, and I don't think for a moment that the disciples at that point really understood, at that point at least, exactly what was being told them. Now the subject title this evening, The Love of Christ, The Critical Factor, we won't take long to get into that because that's the first point we're going to make. And brothers and sisters, if you miss this, believe me, you miss completely the point of this section. You have to see this. It really is critical. You might think when I present it to you it's simple, but I want you to think about it. You see, this section we're on tonight, commencing at verse 15, goes like this. If ye love me, keep my commandments. But that's not what the Greek says. That's not what the original says there. Now you listen to what it says. This is what the Greek really says. If ye love me, ye will keep my commandments. Now that makes an enormous difference. Because you see, brothers and sisters, this is not a commandment we're receiving. It's a statement of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now let that sink right deep into our... I remember reading this this week, or the last couple of weeks, I've been concentrating on this section for the sake of the class, and you know... I know this, I've sort of known that before, but but really, brothers and sisters, it it, it is absolutely profound and it is most challenging. It is tremendously challenging. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whereas we may possibly have thought 
that if we can keep his commandments, we'll learn to love him. But that's not what he said. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, you know, that is so important that I want you to read it again in John's Gospel, the way he put it. Because here's another one in First of John, chapter 2 and verse 5. Now, here's a test, brothers and sisters. We are able to test this for ourselves. We don't have to ask anybody else. We, we don't have to go and inquire about this. We have the test in ourselves of this fact. Now, in the first of John, chapter 2 and verse 5, John says this, But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, Hereby know we that we are in him. Now let's go over that. I don't want you to miss this. Please, I really want you to catch this. If you love me, says Jesus, and John's reporting this, John's listening to this, and he hears the Lord say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So John says, now I heard that, therefore I'm going to be able to test whether I love him or not because I'm going to be able to say to myself that I do keep commandments and I keep them for the right reason. I'll know that. We will know that in here. Now we might say, well, I keep the commandments of Christ. Yeah, we might, brothers and sisters, because we're scared stiff that if we don't at the judgment seat we'll be adjudicated as not worthy of the kingdom. That's not what he said. That's not keeping uh, the commandments of Christ in the way that he said it. You know, later on in this chapter, he said in verse 23 to his disciples, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice. But they weren't rejoicing, were they? And I'm going to, when we come to that verse, perhaps not, not tonight, we don't know. We might get there, but when we come to that verse, I'll show you what he meant. He says, look, if you really love me, you wouldn't have this frame of mind. You wouldn't be sitting here glum and saying, oh, you're going to leave us. You wouldn't be sad at all, if you love me. And the proof, brothers and sisters, that they were not rejoicing, proved that at that stage they didn't love him in the way that they should have been loving him. Now, you know what that means? It means this. And you think deeply about it. Because, brothers and sisters, it's time really fast, way beyond the time, when we ought to be thinking deeply about this. Because our judgment is but tomorrow. If that is true, and it is true, that if ye love me, ye will keep my commandments, then, brothers and sisters, the first and greatest duty that we have is not keeping a set of commandments, but learning to love him, that it will be automatic that we'll keep them. You think about that. So our first bounden duty is to learn to love that man. And there's got to be, brothers and sisters, in our belief, a personification of the truth. As Jesus said, I am the truth. And we can talk about the truth. We can talk about the hope of Israel. Uh, we can talk about the ecclesia of the living God. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we don't personalise that down to the Son of God, then we will not learn to love him and we will not have the motive force to keep his commandments and we will not be in his kingdom. That's as plain as it is. And John says the truth in here about that I know whether I keep the commandments or not and I know why I keep them or I don't keep them, whatever. I know that in here. You know it 
course you know it. Just a question of thinking about it and being honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, isn't it? So the first bounden duty we all have is to learn to love him. And if we truly love him, brothers and sisters, we will keep the commands. And I said this before and I say again, and I want this to sink in, you cannot love anybody you don't know. It is impossible. It, it is hypocrisy to say we love someone that we know nothing about. It just, it's just hypocrisy. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we have the greatest reason on earth to study the Gospel records of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John because that's the only place we're going to find him. doesn't mean to say the Bible's confined to that. But the whole Bible converges here. I am the truth, the way and the life. He's everything. And when we come to this man, we see the word of God personified. That's why we have in this chapter, he talks about the spirit of truth as as he's a person. He talks about the comforter as he's a person. He talks about the Holy Spirit as he's a person. Because he wants to tell us that he really is. It's all personified in him. And we'll see that as we go along. It's all in, in this man. It's here. Now you learn about him. Think about him. Dream about him, brothers and sisters, as we would anybody we loved. Young people, older people who've been through the process of courtship with their partners and young people who are, who are going through that, that stage now of their life prior to marriage and young married couples who spend happy hours together know, brothers and sisters, what it is to love. Oh, people say, this is agape. I'm telling you something. You know what we do with agape? We emasculate the very principle by the exposition of the Greek word. That's what we do. We extract from it the very power of it. Let me tell you this. At the end of this tremendously long discourse in John 16, Jesus said, Ye are my friends, filio, because my Father loves you as his friends. He finished up with filio. And I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, we can have filio without agape. But I want to hear you listen to this. You can never have agape without philia. If it lacks emotion, if it lacks true emotion, it's not agape. Agape is not emotionless. Let's never forget that. It's got to be real. And in our romances together as husband and wife, girlfriend and boyfriend, we know what it feels like to be in love. We know that agape is higher than that. We know that. But we know that agape has got to include, brothers and sisters, that emotional attachment. It includes that. And we've got to learn about this man. We've got to learn to fall in love with him. And if we don't, we won't keep his commandments. That's the plain statement of truth. Now, I can't stress that enough. Because I've got to learn that. You've got to learn that. Because that's going to be the rule of our judgment. Nothing else. Not what we've achieved in our own strength, brothers and sisters. Not how many talks we've given or where we've been or what other people think about us or the halos that they may think we wear. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with his love and why we do what we do. That's what it's about. If ye love me, you will keep my commandments. It's an almighty powerful statement. Think about it. And what will he do? Well, he'll do his part, won't he? I will pray to the Father. So he'll reciprocate that love. He loved us before we ever loved him. 
if for their part, brothers and sisters, they learn to love him and to obey him, he will reciprocate. And he won't pray, as he said here, it's not a question of praying to God, it's a question of praying to the Father. There'll be a common relationship here. The Father, he's the Father of us all. So there's a common relationship. And as a result of that attachment, he will never leave them. They thought he was going to leave them, but he said, I won't leave you. He says, I'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. You see, brothers and sisters, true love binds. We don't have flirtatious relationships with one person this day and another person the next and so on and so on. True love binds. We don't leave each other. We reciprocate the love that is shown. And Jesus said, all right, I've got to go. He knows he's got to go. But he's going to give them another comforter. Comforter, brothers and sisters. You might have heard the Greek word. I don't quote in Greek words, I've improved anything, but some words we're sort of semi-familiar with, parakletos. You might have heard someone say that at different times. That's the word that in the scriptures is rendered by that word comforter. Now, it's only used by John. He's the only one that uses the term. He uses it twice in this 14th chapter, once in the 15th chapter, once in the 16th chapter, and I'd like you to look at the other time he uses it, in the 1st of John, chapter 2. Because this is important. It's rendered comforter uh, those four times in John's Gospel, but here it's used in another sense. In the first of John, chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate, parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if you remember when Brother Des was dealing with this passage of Scripture and with others concerning the Comforter, he made this point, that the Comforter is Jesus Christ. And it is, there's no question of that. He is the advocate, the comforter. Every other form of comforter, brothers and sisters, is a manifestation of him. I'm going to show you that in a minute. No doubt about that. And what does this word parakletos really mean? Well, it means to stand alongside. In the sense that when you're in desperate need, you can turn to this person, he's right alongside you. He never leaves you. Always there to help you and to, 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 to be your advocate. It's Jesus Christ. Never leaves us. He's at the right hand of the Father, but he's at our right hand, brothers and sisters. He's a prayer away. And he's closer than that too. Because he's with us sometimes when we're not even aware of him. Never leaves us. He's always alongside here. The parakletos. So back in John chapter 14 and, and verse 26, when he speaks about the comforter in the, in the form of the Holy Spirit, what does he say? He says, but the comforter which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. See? In my name. So it might have been the Holy Spirit, uh, symbolised by the cloven tongues of fire, and, and it gave this, the, the disciples the ability to speak in, in foreign languages and to understand many things. But it was a manifestation of Jesus Christ. That's who it was. It was to tell them that he was never away from them. He was always standing alongside, always there. Now the fact that Jesus said, I will give you another 
another comforter means that there's more than one manifestation of the comforter. He's going to give them another one. Now there is more manifestations of the comforter. Now we've just seen one, brothers and sisters, and that was the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. Cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them. And then Peter stood up and gave his magnificent speech that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. Well, in John chapter 16, here's Peter's speech. Here's the headings of Peter's speech. John 16, verses 7 to 11. When Jesus later on says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, the paracletus, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Those three things. Now he said, here's, that's the headings. Here comes the subheadings. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That is exactly the three stages of Peter's speech. Peter stood up and said, By wicked hands you've crucified and slain. Of sin, he says, because they believe not on me. Peter's next point was that you whom you, he whom you've crucified, God hath raised from the dead. His next point was the resurrection of Christ. And his final point was, save yourself from this underworld generation, judgment to come. That was exactly the construction of his speech. So the Holy Spirit came upon Peter. It helped him with his remembrance. He brought to remembrance the things that he had learnt. He marshalled his matter and gave a brilliant talk on those three categories. Exactly like that. Well, that's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That, that's Jesus came and did that because the Father sent that in his name. Now here's another form of the comforter. John 16 again. Now you listen to this. Notice the personification. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he, shall, whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and show it unto you. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass and he sent his angel and signified it unto John on the Isle of Patmos. That's the words of John 16. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass and he sent his angel. He shall take of mine which he's heard of me and tell you and show you things to come. That's exactly Revelation 1 verse 1. So the manifestation on Patmos of an angel appearing to John, that angel came in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and there was a comforter. This time not in the form of a cloven tongues like fire, 
not in the form of an invisible spirit symbolized by the rushing wind, but actually an angel standing there. Jesus said, he shall take of mine and show it unto you. And Revelation calls him his angel, the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His special angel sent to tell John that message. And isn't Revelation a comfort? Doesn't it depict, brothers and sisters, for us the fact that the Lord stands alongside us on behalf of his persecuted servants down through the annals of history? If ever you had a comfort, it's the apocalypse. But there's another manifestation of the, of the comforter. Now John says, this comforter, he says this one, he said, that he may abide with you forever. Now the word abide means just simply that, it means to stay or to dwell. Uh, actually, both those rendings, uh, abode and dwelling, is used in John chapter 1 in verse 39. It, it says they, they came and saw where he abode and dwelt with him. That's the word here we've got for abide. And it's one of John's favourite expressions. Oh, you've got it about 15, maybe 16 odd times through John 14, 15 and 16. Abide in me, abide this, you abide in my love and all this. He loved that word, brothers and sisters. He loved that word that we will live with him. You see, you see the point that's being made, but the Lord was making that point. John's just reporting this, but John never, he heard that word, he heard it over and over again. We're going to live with this man, live with him. Now you see, you've got to know a person when you get that close. And John was the first, along with Andrew, of the apostles who actually did that. And they came and saw his abode and dwelt with him. And the same word in the Greek for abide. That's the first time that John uses it. The first time he ever used it, he found out where he lived and stayed with him. Now these are very intimate terms, brothers and sisters. You've got to be able to be, have a vivid imagination to really appreciate the Bible. You've got to see that, you know, you go to a person and they say, come and stop with me, stay with me, stay here in this house. You eat with them, you drink with them, you sleep in the same place, you walk together around the house, you talk, you learn to, learn to know each other, you come to understand each other and you come to love each other, you live with that person. Well, that's what John keeps telling us in this, in this chapter. But this one is always alongside of us. And he promised he's going to live with us. And he says forever. Now the Holy Spirit didn't last forever, did it? We know through our studies of the word that the Holy Spirit was given for a specific purpose. And when that purpose was fulfilled, it, it, it disappeared. With the, with, the, with the apostles, of course, going off the scene, it could no longer be transmitted by the laying on of their hands. And so the work of the Holy Spirit came to an end. But brothers and sisters, what was, one of the, what was one of the works of the Holy Spirit? What did it do? It wrote the Bible. It wrote the Old Testament. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by his, by his Spirit. And it didn't stop there. But Ephesians tells us that the work of the Spirit gave some apostles, some evangelists, some teachers, some pastors for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, till we all come in the unity of the faith of the Son of God and so forth. And so the, uh, the Spirit filled up its work and left the Bible. It's ever with us. And you know, if they took that Bible away, brothers and sisters, if we didn't have a Bible, it'd still be with us. Because we'd remember it, wouldn't we? We wouldn't remember all of it. But I'll guarantee if they took away all our Bibles out of this hall collectively, we could remind each other of many passages of Scripture that we've learned off by heart over the years we've spent in the truth. It will never leave us.
And that was the work of the Comforter forever. And he calls him the Spirit of Truth. See? Even, he says in verse 17, the Spirit of Truth. Now let's have a look at the first of John on this one because as Brother Des showed us, the, the epistles of John are but an extension of his words in the Gospel records. I thought that was one of the most interesting features about Des's talks. Not much else was interesting than that was, Des. I thought that was a, a very interesting feature of those talks. don't really mean that, of course. But in the first of John, chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can test it, brothers and sisters. We can test it by people's reaction. We can see when people take an opposite stance, we know why they do. We can see quite clearly what's wrong with the situation because, because we have the spirit of truth and we're able to say, I, I can see your problem. We know that, says John, because of the spirit of truth. We know what the spirit of truth is and we know what the spirit of error is. Now, first of John 5 and verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is true. We know that, said John. We know that spirit of truth, not just simply the truth, brothers and sisters. We may not be able, for example, to identify a particular problem by a particular phrase. We may not remember the biblical phrase exactly, but we discern immediately that that is different than what we've learned and it's so different. And we understand that because we've got a point of contrast. But the other person does not understand that. This is the spirit of truth. Now says John 14... The world cannot receive this. And it can't. You know, we didn't come into the truth, brethren and sisters, because we invented it or even discovered it. I think it's very rare cases that it can be said that people come into the truth without human intervention, that God didn't use some means, method or whatever, be it a pamphlet or whatever, to introduce the truth to a person. I think it's a falsity to say that people come into the truth on their own. How shall they hear except they be a preacher? And how shall he be preached except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, preacheth peace and so forth. It's all of God so that we are taught of God, said Jesus. They shall all be taught of God. John chapter 6, quoting Isaiah 54. They shall be all taught of God. So we know the truth and the spirit of the truth. But we think, don't we, that a good education would equip a person to know the truth, whereas a poor education would not equip a person to know the truth. And that's, that, you see, is a falsity because it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Because it's not the education of this world that's compatible with the truth. Now, I want to, I want to deal at length, brothers and sisters, with this principle because I want all of us to be comforted. Parakletos. I want to go away tonight knowing that we are of God. Irrespective of what our level of education was or what our background was, we, we know the truth. Now in the first Corinthians chapter 2, there's no better way to explain this point that Jesus is making than Paul filled it out for us in first Corinthians 2. Jesus said, the world can't know this. You know it, but the world can't know it. Here's why it can't. This is the best explanation, as, I, as, as far as a detailed explanation is concerned, is this one. See, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, 
But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Now, we sometimes use that verse and we say, oh yeah, what the apostle means is that, you know, the future will be so glorious that none of us will ever be able to contemplate it or or, or understand it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying this, that there's, there's no eye brilliant enough, there's no ear perceptive enough, and there's no heart of man deep enough to understand the things of God. There is no man born with those attributes that can understand the word of God because he's a man. It just doesn't exist. And we wouldn't care if he's got letters after his name, M-A-D or whatever it might be after his name. There's no man born or what education that fits him to understand the wisdom of God. The qualification is them that love him. If you love me, you'll not only keep my sayings, but if you love him, you'll understand him because you want to understand him. That does not depend on your level of education. For, says the Apostle, take an illustration in life. Verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? In other words, I don't know how you think. I've got some idea about what you say and what you do perhaps. You've got no idea how I think for the same reasons. We, we, we know each other relatively well. We mix quite frequently. But we've never got to the bottom of each other's soul entirely, have we? My spirit is my spirit. Yours is yours. We harbour private loves, private hates, private thoughts. We don't share them all together with everybody, do we? So that spirit which is in me, which makes up me, I know that, but you, you will never know all of it. You know some of it, you don't know all of it. Now Paul said that's equally true about the spirit of God. Even so, The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So we've got to enter not only into the detailed study of the word but the spirit and intent behind it and come to see the expression of a divine mind, of a divine character, of a divine personage and we come to understand how he sees the world, how he sees life, how he sees everything. And it's not long before we perceive that his way of thinking is unique, absolutely unique. And instead of striking a chord within us with our human spirit, we find that we've got to adopt his way of thinking to be able to understand what he's saying. And when we do, brothers and sisters, we only do it because we love him and not because we came out of Eton or Cambridge or any other college. This is a whole section here. So he says in verse 13 or verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. They're not learnt so much as given. Oh yes, we've got to learn them. But by so learning, brothers and sisters, all we're doing is picking up a gift. We're picking up a gift. And the spirit word, we we don't believe in the magic of uh, how some people see the work of the Holy Spirit as putting ideas into your head and and sort of dropping thoughts in your heart. It's not like that. But I'll tell you what it is like. The Holy Spirit wrote that book and all sorts of ideas and sentiments are in here and we adopt them. And as we adopt them, we become part of our being. And because they become part of our being, we understand what he's saying. Because we love him. We want to know that. 
So it says, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now he says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, which doesn't mean comparing this verse with that verse. That's not what it's saying. The Greek says this, speaking spiritual things to spiritual people. When this meeting is over, we will congregate around this hall with a cup of tea or so forth, little groups will form and we'll talk about the word. And there'll be exchange of thoughts and everybody will grasp what the other person is saying and if they don't, a few questions will solve the problem and we'll feel a rapport over what we're talking about. Why do we do that? Because spiritual people are talking to spiritual people. But Paul says in verse 14, you bring into this hall people who know nothing about the Bible, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, but the foolishness unto him. He'll stand around those groups and, and feel pity upon these poor Christians helping, these Bible bashers, and think what a, what a dumb lot these are. He won't have a clue what we're on about. He just won't have a clue. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Now as our friends meet with us and they become familiar with our, our terminology and they learn aspects of the truth, so they will become familiar with them too and they will join in for the conversation. But get a person to walk in out of there out of curiosity for no other reason and land in this hall, he says, what a lot of dumb clucks these people are. Never heard such a lot of rubbish in all my life. And now he'll go and shake his head and feel sorry for us. He hasn't got a clue what we're talking about. Isn't that true? Now he says, because they are spiritually discerned. Look at verse 15. But he that is spiritual discerneth all things. Yet he himself is discerned of no man. Now you think about that. The word judgeth there, as the margin says, is the same word discerneth. He which is spiritual discerns all things. Yet he himself is discerned of no man. So say we, for example... So the tables were reversed and we went into some community where we were the stranger and they were all talking about things of the world. You know what would happen? We would know exactly what they were talking about. Oh, we might know the details, but we would understand the spirit by which they're speaking. We would see what their problem is. We would see through that problem like a pane of glass because we related to them by flesh. We would discern all things but there's no way that they could look back at us and understand we're, what we're on about. They wouldn't have a clue. But we can know exactly what they're up to. And Christadelphians, by and large, right down to the last brother and sister, despite what you might think, are very intelligent people. And that's not patronising anyone. When I come here and I talk about a problem, we're trying to help a brother and sister, and you make an analysis of where the problem is, and you think you're smart, you go and talk to a brother and sister, and they've seen exactly the same thing, exactly as you've seen it. They might not be as eloquent in putting it forward, but they have discerned where the problem is, they see the needs and they see the things that are happening because they see from God's viewpoint and see what he's looking at and because they know how God views human nature, they look through God's eyes, they, they are human, they can relate to that which is human and they can relate to that which is divine. They discern all things, but they're not discerned by everybody else because there's two different wavelengths. Now that's what Jesus is on about. He says, look, when the spirit of truth has come, whom the world cannot receive. And they can't. 
unless they learn to love God. That is the critical factor. That is the critical factor. And the lowest common denominator in this hall on the basis of education will come to a brilliant understanding of God if they love him, brothers and sisters, despite the lack of education. Because God will give it to them. They'll pick it up. And they may be faltering in their expression of it. But in here, they know the truth. And they know the spirit of the truth. Jesus said the world can never do that. But he went on to say this to his disciples in John 14. Again in verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. Now those disciples sitting there and think, I do? I know him? Yes, he says, you know him. Well, brothers and sisters, they didn't know him, did they? In the sense that they had not discerned a lot of things. But if they had not been thinking spiritually, with all the limitations they had, they wouldn't be where they were in that moment, would they? They wouldn't be risking their lives with a man who was notorious and wanted by the, by the authorities, would they? They wouldn't be doing what they were doing if they were not spiritually minded. Oh, they had a long way lot to learn academically as far as the truth was concerned. But it had come. But Jesus knew this, that apart from the one that was... Oh, he's gone now, anyway. He's gone. In that room, he knew that there were people who said, You know! How do we know? Again, in the first of John, brothers and sisters. Here's another one of John's unique words. Only John uses this word. It's only found three times. We're all here. First of John, chapter 2. Here's how we know. He says... They, that is, people who leave the truth, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might, that might made manifest that they were not all of us. Judas has just gone out of that last supper. John's not talking about that here, but that was typical of what, what people do. They walk out on him, don't they? He says they weren't really one of us. If they'd have been one of us, they'd still be here. But Judas is gone. But now he says in verse 20, and John quotes from the last supper, but ye have an unction from the Holy One and know all things. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? Now the word unction and the word anointing, which we're going to read in a minute, is the same word. You have an anointing. It's like you've been smeared with oil, says John. We've been smeared with the oil. Now you've got it in verse 27, the same word. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you and ye need not that any man teach you. You don't have any other man teaching you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. That's exactly what he said. So the point he's making is this. He said, look, people who get up and walk out, they, they went out because they were not of us. They were never of us. If they had been with us, they'd still be here. But you're here, he said, and you know him. And John says, we know him because we've been anointed. And we don't have to have man teaching us. God is anointing us with the truth. We don't need to go to a professor to ask him what the Bible means. God will tell us. Because there's an anointing here, says the Lord, says the Apostle John. And he teaches you all things. And it's truth and it's no lie. Now that word anointing in verse 27 and the word unction are the same Greek word. Brethren and sisters, when they anointed the priest... They did so with a holy anointing oil compounded. 
of special ingredients that no one dare imitate on pain of death. God said, if you attempt to make anything like this, I will put you to death. There never could be a compound like that. So here was this anointing oil, a light perfumed oil for the purpose of anointing, of like, like a perfume it was. And it was unique because it was compounded of the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God and there is no substitute. No man has got it, no professor has got it, no school of education has any curriculum that includes it. Not there! It's here and there's no imitation. Now John says we know because that's where we got it from. And it's the spirit of truth. It's not just the truth, it's the spirit of it. We may not understand all the details. But brothers and sisters, wherever we go in the Bible, wherever we go in the world, wherever we go in our life or in our mind, we know the spirit of the truth. We know what the spirit of that is. Now that's what Jesus is talking about across that table. And these poor bewildered men who were really thinking to themselves, well, I've got a heck of a lot to learn. And they did. But their brothers and sisters, they had the prerequisite, they learning to love him. You know why? They had been living with him. Walking with him. Talking with him. Watching him. Listening to him. And you could never have been that long with our Lord not to fall in love with him and want to keep his commandments. Not because he told you to keep them, because you will. Because the motive force is there. So important, brothers and sisters. We live in a world, you know, where the application of principles is applied in such a way that sometimes we break every commandment in the book of Christ. If we loved him, we wouldn't do that. We will keep, we will keep his commandments. It's not a question that we've got it. We will if we love him. That's the point. Loving is the greatest thing. No doubt about that at all. And I make no apologies if that appears to be emotionalism. So be it. The Bible says it, brothers and sisters, if we don't love him, to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your might and all your strength. He doesn't say, serve him with all your might, with all your strength, all your heart, then love him. He doesn't say that. It's loving him first. And that is the compelling force, brothers and sisters, to go forth. So Jesus said in that 14th chapter of John, this spirit of truth which you know, he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Look at that. So he dwells with them and in them. He's the advocate, isn't he? He's the paracletus. He's alongside of them. Or, to quote one another John's favourite terms, he abides with them. He's with them. And truly, said John, our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son. We've got fellowship with them. But brothers and sisters, they're not only with us, they're in us. You see how it is. Live long enough with a person, love a person hard enough and you bond together into one. You haven't got to just come alongside you, you've got them in you. And Jesus said they'll dwell with you and in you. It's terrific when you hear, when you hear him say that. You know, Paul tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, dwell it richly in you. Take charge of your emotions, brothers and sisters. Take charge of your life. The word of Christ taking charge of you, it's in you becomes the dynamo of your life. 
You haven't just got him alongside of you. You're taking him right into your being. And Jesus said, if that's the case, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. Now, sometimes we confuse that word comfortless and say, oh, must be related to paracletus. Not really, it's got nothing to do with paracletus in that technical sense. Actually, the word in the Greek, you'll recognise it, is orphanos. Our English translation or transliteration of orphan from that. I won't leave you as orphans. Is that the right translation? Of course it is. Because the only other occurrence, brothers and sisters, is in that famous chapter in James chapter 1, verse 27, to visit the fatherless. That's the only other use of the word. So fatherless children are orphans, aren't they? Now back in chapter 13 and verse 33, he called them his little children. See? So he's their father. Jesus is our father, brothers and sisters, in that sense that we are his children. Come over to Hebrews 2. You see here we have this statement in Hebrews 2 verse 11 where we read, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. See the point? You say, but that's not a children, that's a brother. That's right. See what he's saying? But because of the fact that we are sanctified through his sanctification, because of the fact that he lived a perfect life that we might share it, this is the point he's making. He lived a perfect life that we, that we can share that because nothing else is acceptable to God, is it? God doesn't accept imperfection. We've got to share his perfection through the forgiveness of our sins and his perfection and we have the righteousness of God. We share that. And because it's a shared thing, he, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. But we don't call him that, do we? Or do we? I remember when I first came to the truth, it was a common practice and I'm so glad it doesn't exist today. I only heard it once just recently for the first time for many years. But it was a very common practice in our prayers. I never used it, but it used it great on me. But, and I, I'm not accusing the brethren or saying that they, that they were wrong necessarily. They were technically, but they didn't realise that. But they used to pray in the name of our elder brother. Well, that's not right. That's his property. He is not ashamed to call us that. Oh, we are the brethren of Christ, true, but we don't address him as our older brother. You know, I often say that Uncle Perth was my father in the truth and Jesus is my brother. Come on. Look at verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. He is to us, brothers and sisters, a manifestation of the father. He is a father figure to us. It's his prerogative and, I say, his graciousness that allows him the privilege to call us brethren. But we are his children. And as his children, he said to them, I won't leave you like orphans. It's a very poor parent, brothers and sisters, that will walk away from a child. It's a very poor parent indeed. I will come, he said to you. And actually, it's in the present continuous tense I am coming I am coming you know it's a beautiful figure isn't it of a child who thinks its mother or its father has left it bereft in the world and you know how you figure of a little child you, you bring up children in your home and you, you see your, your, your wife tendering those babies and you marvel at a mother's love and the little things in the next room has been put to sleep 
It wakes up and it feels in its little mind, immature mind, it's on its own in the world. Mummy, mummy. And what does the little child hear? I am coming. And mum runs down the passage to the bedroom. I am coming. Not I will come. I'm always there. Just a matter of a call. I am coming. And he did. I'll be with you even under the end of the ages and beyond. And he was there, brothers and sisters, in the power of the Spirit. He appeared to Paul on several occasions. And there were providential care manifest in so many ways. He was always there. I'm coming. Never be orphans. Very, very wonderful thought, that. Very lovely thought. Now, verses 19 to 24, we have here, brothers and sisters, the binding power of love. It binds. It really binds. He says, look, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but you see me. Now, it wasn't true, literally, was it? I mean, the last time the world saw him, brothers and sisters, was on the cross. That's the last they saw of him. He did not appear uh, to the world, even after his resurrection. But as, as the Apostle says, chosen witnesses that he'd chosen. He appeared to them, 500 at once. Certain amount of brethren here. James and, and, and John and Peter and then last of all me, said Paul. He didn't appear to the world. The last time the world saw him was on the cross. He said, the world sees me no more, but you'll see me. Well, they did because Acts records the fact that, that he appeared unto them and, and was with them for 40 days and 40 nights speaking of concerning the kingdom of God. But he went on to say, uh, ye, ye see me, he said, uh, but because I live, ye shall live also. Now, they, they saw him, brothers and sisters, because he lived. He didn't die. Oh yes, he was dead for three days, but what's three days? He's alive, so he lives. And though we don't see him by the naked eye, we see him, don't we? When we meet him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, we'll recognise him, will we? Will we recognise him, says John? That when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, he doesn't mean to say, oh, there's Jesus, that's Jesus. Yeah, that's him. doesn't mean that, brother. He said, he, we will know him. We will recognise him. We've never laid eyes on him. But we have. We can visualise him. Not as a, shall we say, immaterial form. We don't know what he looked like. We've got very little evidence of that. Hardly any. It's not the point. We'll just know him because of his character. We've never forgotten that. And, and the disciples, though they can't see him, can see him. John, he said that. And he said this, because I live, ye shall live also. Why? Why should that be? Because Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 10, we're saved by his life. You ever thought about that? You'll live because I live. We're saved by his life. Think about it, brothers and sisters, how profoundly simple it is. You think about it. Jesus died for our sins. We know why? Because of his nature. Had the same nature as us. The nature which is inclined to sin. Devilish nature. Well, he crucified the thing and destroyed it. We understand that perfectly. And so we see that God's righteousness was declared in the death of a sinless man because he had the nature that is prone to sin. And God said it's not worth a crack. It's nothing. We understand that. But what about his life? 
Look, brothers and sisters, look what Paul said. You listen. Listen. Work the logic out with me. Be logical. Paul said this, for when, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now we don't know much about this much more, do we? We don't know much about it. But Paul classified it as much more we shall be saved by his life. Now work it out. So when Christ died upon the cross, we were reconciled to God. We weren't saved. We weren't saved by that. We were reconciled to God. Okay, stop there and think, to what were we reconciled to God about? Well, the death of his son. What do we learn about the death of his son? This is what we learn. The flesh profits nothing. Now at that point, we're in total agreement with God. Total agreement. About what? About the flesh being nothing. If it stayed there, brothers and sisters, you know what would happen? We would go to the grave, believing in God, that the flesh profits nothing, and go into the ground and never see the kingdom of God. We'd be reconciled to God's point of view. We'd agree that what happened to us is right. That we're nothing. But we've got to be something, don't we? And when we find out we're nothing, then we've got to adopt another way of life that's not our own to come back to life again. Saved by his, his, his life. Because I live, you will live also. Isn't that true? So we've lost our life. We're nothing. Our personal identities in in that sense, according to the dictates of the flesh, are gone. We we won't own it. It'll come again, I know. We'll all sin. But we don't own it. We, We don't want to own that. We want to exhibit in our ways, brothers and sisters, the way that he lived, the way he thought, the way that he spoke, the way he treated people, the way that he loved them. We want to show people that we've got an entirely different form of life than we ever had before. If you live, he said, if I live, you'll live also. Only because we live in him. That's the only reason, brothers and sisters, isn't it? And he says, at that day, in verse 20, you shall know that I am in my Father and ye in me and I in you. You know what? At that day, what day? This is not the day of the kingdom. We've learnt that now. He's not talking about when the kingdom comes. He's talking about after he's risen, the comforter has come and the full realisation of what he said comes upon the apostles. So when they experienced the risen Christ, they met with him and talked with him as they touched him, met with him, handled him. The word of life, John said, we handled it. A risen Lord. They knew then, brothers and sisters, what he was. All he was. They saw the import of it. And they knew that the resurrection to life was only, only the, the physical seal of the moral perfection that the Father had, 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 had acknowledged in his physical perfection. So they knew that the Father's stamp was on him. They'd become to know that. And so they said, so Jesus, you'll know, he said, that uh, I am in my Father, you're in me and I in you. And John says, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Truly it is. Truly said it is. Why? Because we've handled him and seen it. Didn't have to wait for the kingdom to find that out. If we come here Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, and don't know that, what on earth are we coming here for? If we don't know, when we sit down out there, that we're in fellowship with the Father and the Son, it's time we learn that. And how do we know that? by experiences in our life, by prayers to our Father through our risen Lord, 
by seeing the providence of God working in our life and the Lord Jesus as the channel of communication, sending out the providential care through his angels and circumstances of life, guiding us, admonishing us, teaching us, disciplining us, loving us, rebuking us, everything. We see that and we know, we know that we're in the Father and the Son and we sit here and we know that for sure. Truly, John says, truly it is true. He said, you'll know it that day and they did. They did. You see what he said? Verse 20. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father. Now before it was the Father. But now it's my Father. And the reason, brothers and sisters, is that he'd want to tell them, you see, that the realisation will come like this. Here's the Lord. Come, feel me, touch me, it's I. Not a, not a ghost, he said. Not a spirit. It's me. Flesh and bones has not. This is, is, is a ghost has, hasn't got these flesh and bones. You see me have it's me. Touch me, talk me. He took broiled fish and they were amazed and they watched him, and it dawned on them. He's risen from the dead. He's deathless, and it dawned on them again. Why is he deathless? God does not endow people with eternal life unless they were morally perfect. God has endorsed this man. And if he was morally perfect, why? He must have been the Son of God. He told us that, but now we know that. And so it's his Father. But now we're in him. So it's our Father. It's, it's just the, the linking up of relationships and facts of life. You'll know, said you. You'll know. You'll get to know that. Linking up of the facts of life and relationships. You know, brothers and sisters, never are we instructed anywhere by the Lord or by his apostles to address God as my Father. We always got to address him as our Father. You say, what's the difference? Enormous difference. Because my Father means singular, special, unique. But our Father, brothers and sisters, means that we're only in God because collectively we're together and in him. And you see how important that is. We've got to work out the relationships. He's son of God. Oh, that means God is actually his father. It's his father. It's really his father. But I'm in him. Oh, well that means that it's, it's our, yes, our father because all my other brothers and sisters are with him too. And I've learnt to love him because he loved all of us. And therefore if I don't love my brother and sister, I'm not a member of that family. He's not my father. He can only ever be our father. He can't be my father and he can't be your father. He can only be our father. Which means, brothers and sisters, it's so absolutely critical to understand that relationship that we have with God through his son and each other because collectively that's how we appear before God. And it's a wonderful family unit, isn't it? So he says, it's my father but you're in me and he's in you. Absolutely beautiful. And then he says this, brothers and sisters, well, let's go to John chapter, Romans chapter 8, just to, just to show you the spirit of this. See how the Apostle puts it in Romans 8, that same principle that we, it's our Father because it's his Father. See, he, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself, bearing witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. Look at all the plural terms. So it's a collective thing, isn't it? We come together as a family and the family spirit teaches us that we're all galvanised and generated from the one father. A family member breaks away, stands on his own dig and says, listen, nothing to do with you crowd, he's my father, he's not his father. It's we who are the children of God, brothers. This is not singularly you or me or anybody else, it's we. And that is a very wonderful principle. Shows you how strong that is in the word, that this, this, this relationship, this tie together, it's just got to be maintained. Oh, not at the expense of truth. We know, as he said, those who go out, whether they go off into the world or whether they go off in wrong doctrine, well, they're not of us. We know that. We're not talking about them. We're talking about people who know and love the truth. Because that's what he's talking about in John chapter 14. Then he went on to say this, in verse 21, He that, keepeth, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, same thing, he, he it is that loveth me. Same thing, isn't it? See? See what he's saying? He doesn't say, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them will learn to love me. He says, he it is that loveth me. Got the point? It's exactly the same as saying, if ye love me, ye will keep my commandments. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Now, yeah, that's awfully simple, isn't it? It's like saying, you know, group of people, this ecclesia, just for argument's sake, and we're not the only ecclesia, of course, with whom this applies, we're not special, but just take our, our own ecclesia. We say, well, we've got God's commandments and we keep them because we, we love God. Jesus said to us, you love my father? You know something? I love you too. Why? Because you love my father. See? And he says, and I will love him. He's, he's loved of my father. If my father loves you, if you love my father, and my father loves you, I love you for that reason. Not a single love. It's not saying, well, he loves you one way, you love him another way, and I love you all a different way. Not like that at all. He said, you love my father, and he loves you, well, so do I. Isn't that true of a family life, brothers and sisters? You come into a person's home, and you say, you know, you love my father? And the person says, yeah, I love your dad. And your dad loves me. Well, so do I. Why? Because I love my dad. You know, you might think that's oversimplification, but that's what he's saying, isn't he? It's such a strong family bond, isn't it? It's so beautiful. Now, brothers and sisters, he that loveth me is he that keepeth my commandments. Look, do you know something? What is keeping the commandments? What is it? We talk about God manifestation. Look, honestly, it's almost like a, how can I put it, so academic that it becomes rigid. God manifestation is actually acting like God. It's not just a doctrine, brothers and sisters. It's not something you, you list down as a set of, a set of rules or principles. It, it's actually living, living like God. It, it, it's just doing what God does. Now, here's a couple of magnificent examples of that. Back in John chapter 7, look at this. It's loving God and wanting to act like him. Now, here's how it's known. Here's how we get to know this. In John chapter 7, and verse 15, and the Jews marvelled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. 
And if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You see the point? Let me try and simplify that. They come, they said, but you didn't, you, you didn't go to a rabbinical school. You didn't get a stamp from Gamaliel and a degree. You, you, you didn't do that. You got carpenter come from Nazareth. How do you know all this? And he says, how do I know it? Because I, the doctrine I teach is not my doctrine. It belongs to my father. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, by doing it, I know by experience it is true. I know that by doing the very things he said, it works. And it just comes out exactly like he said. And then I learned that by doing that, that's exactly what he does. I know the truth of it by the practice of it. I know the truth of it by the practice of it. It rings true. It acts true. It is true. It's God. Couldn't be anything else. Now you come out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. Look at these things, brothers and sisters. So it's not just a question of performing a commandment. It's really living a part. Living a part that God would live. Look at verse 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 9. Thus saith Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. See the same thing? None have to have a big education. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this what? That he understandeth and knoweth me. How does he know that? That I am Yahweh which exercise, that is practice, loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. How does he do that? See what he's saying? Don't come to me with, with a degree or a diploma of education. I'm not interested. You want to boast about what you know? Boast that you know me. And how do you know me? Well, I exercise, I actually practice these virtues. Loving kindness, judgment and righteousness. And where do I practice them? In the earth. How's God doing that in the earth, brothers and sisters? How's he doing that in the earth? He only do that in the earth through people. But it's God that's doing it. So people who are practising loving kindness, judgement and righteousness are living in God. And you say to those people, how do you know you're right? They say, hey, I know that's right. Because it, it, those principles, when they're put into operation, just are so marvellous. I never learnt them from textbooks. They, they, they were way above anything the world could ever taught me. And in the very practice of them, I get to know the person who is the very epitome of them. It's him. He's doing it. I exercise. God says, I'm exercising these things in the earth because he was doing it through people. Jeremiah 22. Beautiful things. We know this verse so well. The young people have got a Josiah day. It's taken from this reference. And here, these words are addressed to his son, Jehoiakim. It was a wicked man and God addressing him through Jeremiah the prophet and says to him in verse 15, Shalt thou reign because thou closest, this is Jeremiah 22 verse 15, Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father, Josiah, eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Jehoiakim. 
was not this to know me? What? Judging the cause of the poor and needy. Isn't that getting to know me, Jehoiakim? So he didn't, wasn't poring over a textbook. He was out there among the people. He was judging the poor and the needy and providing for their needs. The king, he had means and he's helping them out. God said, that man knows me. How does he know me? Because I told him to do that? No, not because I told him to do it, because he knows that's what I do. So we want to teach a person a job. We say, here's the textbook. It says this, that and everything else. Point number one, press this button. Point number two, press that button. It's a textbook. Now we say, press the button. Oh, then we do it. We learn it by doing it. Very bad illustration, I suppose. But it's somewhere near the mark, isn't it? We learn about God in the Bible. He's this, he's something else. He's that, he's kind, he's loving, he's truthful, he's upright, he's just. He's all these things. The book says so. We go out and do it. You know, Peter says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it. Someone says, that cake's beautiful. Take their word for it? No. Get a piece and eat it. It's good. Because we've tasted that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's all over the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying. He that loveth me will keep my commandments. I'll come with him. We'll dwell with him. My father will learn to love him. I'll love him because my father loves him. Why? Because it's all a big family characteristic, isn't it? All stemming from the one fatherhood. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, we very quickly, we must finish this little section in John, at least down to verse 24. It won't take long. But, you know, it says here, beautiful sections of the word. It says here in verse uh, 21, it says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, this puzzled the disciples. Oh, You'll manifest them to who? To those who love him. But you see, brothers and sisters, they thought their conception of Messiah was uh, that he would manifest himself to the world. John chapter 7 and verse 4. See, here it is. This is what they thought. See? This is how they thought. Here's the proof of it. They said to Jesus, he wouldn't go into Galilee, into Jewry at that time. And they, they said in verse 4, um, of verse 3 his brethren therefore said unto him depart hence and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest for as no man that doeth anything in secret and he himself seeketh to be known openly if thou do these things show yourself to the world that was their conception you, you ought to be out among the world you ought to be showing everybody these things Jesus said no I'm going to put a restriction on that I'm not going to do that I'm going to show myself or manifest myself to those who love me and love my father and I love them because I love my father. And people who are bound up in that family relationship, I will manifest myself. I will put a restriction on whom I will manifest myself. I'm not going to manifest myself to everybody like you think. Now it was Judas that asked him that. John was very quick to add, not Iscariot. Of course it wasn't because Iscariot had gone, hadn't he? He'd gone out in the night. Chapter 13 and verse 30. He'd gone out and it was night. He'd, he'd finished. But John doesn't want any memory of him in that room. doesn't want anybody even to think about him. So he says, not a scary. Don't, don't think about him. But this Judas says, uh, he says here, Lord, how is it that thou, wilt, that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? How is it? Now the Greek is beautifully rendered by Rotherham. 
rather than how is it, he says, what has happened? What's different? Nothing was different. Well, why why do you place that restriction? Because John 7 and verse 4, they said, we believe you should manifest yourself to the world. What's changed? Nothing's changed. They had a misconception, that's what's changed. They never understood him at all. He said, no, I never said that. I said, I will manifest myself under my family. And my family is those who love my father and who are loved of my father and automatically I love them because they love my father because I love my father. And I'll manifest myself to them. You've got it all wrong. Nothing's changed. And then he goes on, patiently explains, brothers and sisters, to Judas, that he's not talking here about bodily manifestation at all. He's not talking about going around showing himself openly bodily to people. So he explains to, to, to Judas this way, verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, Judas... He will keep my words. He will. It doesn't say he's got to learn to keep his words and love him. He says, if he loves me, if a man loves me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Understand that, Judah? Very simple, isn't it? If a man loves me, he will keep my words. And if that's the case, then my father will love him. And if that's the case... We'll come together and live with him. But Judas, you talk about the world, he that loveth me not doesn't keep my sight. Now look at this. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. You see what he's saying? See, he says, if a man love me, keep my commandments. Doesn't love me? Don't keep my commandments. If he keeps my commandments, the Father will love him because it's the Father's commandments and we'll both come together and live with him. Now, a man doesn't keep my commandments. He doesn't understand that the word that you're listening to is my Father's word. So he doesn't even know what he's rejecting. You do, but he doesn't. So he doesn't address that to the world. He doesn't say it because they don't know the face. He, he doesn't know that the words you're listening to are my Father's word. He doesn't know that. And because he doesn't know it, He doesn't keep my father's commandments. He has no relationship with my father. He doesn't know where the words are coming from. But you do. Judas, it's to people like that that I'm going to manifest myself. And he did. And it wasn't bodily manifestation he was talking about. He was talking about brothers and sisters, the comforter, standing alongside and in people through the spirit of the word so that the spirit of God's truth floods our being paints pictures for us of personalities that we learn to love. We adore them and want to do the things that they would love us to do. We want to be ever in their presence. We draw near to them in prayer and we draw them near to us in our prayers. They stand alongside of us. They live in us. Shouldn't they? I know these are ideals I'm talking about. You're all sitting there thinking, it's not like that with me. Well, it's not like that with me either. And we need to make it like that, brothers and sisters. Because if we don't, then that book doesn't mean a thing to us. And we've got to get down. We really have to think hard about this and get down to, to bringing this man right down to a point where we can actually know him so intimately to fall in love with him. So passionately that we will do the things he commands without being told to do them. That's what we'll do. And we will exercise in the earth those very things for which he is known and his father is known. And his father the origin of them. 
and we will do them and in the very doing of them we'll say, hey, now I know him because that's exactly what he does. And it's a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, to reach that maturity in the truth and I don't know how many years it takes to do that but every older brother and sister listening to me tonight, I don't think can deny anything that's in there but we all know in our heart of hearts it's the most difficult thing to act spontaneously against our own nature because we come to love someone greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm.